Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 49, the first episode of 2023. And happy new year to everybody listening. Hope you had a great, great New Year's Eve celebration. Not too great. Hope you're okay getting back to work. And once again, Happy New Year to all listeners. And we're ready to jump right in with our first episode of the new year, which is going to be with former WWE Creative Services Creative Director Mike Foley, a good friend of mine and somebody that I worked with for a number of years and have known for a lot longer than that. And we'll get to that conversation in just a moment. A few very exciting and some unfortunate things that I want to talk about briefly before we get to today's new interview. And first of all, uh, what I'm very thrilled to mention is that I can announce now, because it's in the can, that next week's 50th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, a major milestone for this podcast, my guest will be none other than the man behind the Arcadian Vanguard Network himself, the great Brian Last. That's right, your friend and mine, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard, and the co-host of the Jim Cornette Experience, as well as the host of the drive-thru, will be my guest next week, and it's an extra bonus double-length episode, a two-hour episode, which I am happy to bring to you. It was a pleasure, always a pleasure, and lots of fun talking to Brian. I know he doesn't do these kinds of interviews often, so it was an honor to be able to do it. And like I said, a lot of fun. I know that you guys are going to really enjoy it. And that will be next week's episode, the 50th episode of this show. A few other things to mention. The current issue of Inside the Ropes, I am very excited to say, is now on sale. That's issue number 28 It's on sale in digital and print form at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. The reason that I'm so excited about it is that it contains part two of my breakdown of the old school pro wrestling territories. Uh, Last month's issue, the issue with Jim Cornette on the cover, that had part one and it had the big fold out territory map. You can still get that, by the way. This new issue has MJF on the cover. And it has part two, because this thing was so huge, we couldn't just fit it in one part. Part two, I look at territories in the great state of Texas, in the American West, California, and other Western states, in Hawaii, as well as up north in Canada. I look at all the great Canadian territories. That's in part two of my territory article. And guess what? It has a reprint of the territory map the revised and corrected modern edition 
of the territory map in half page form. It's not a fold out poster. If you want the fold out poster, you got to get issue 27, the last issue, but it's uh, reprinted in smaller form in the new issue. Get it now at inside the ropes magazine.com. Couple of sad things I wanted to take note of uh, as we start the new year. We had a couple of losses to the wrestling community, especially the old school wrestling community in the past week since 2022 ended that I want to make note of. The first of them being the voice of TNA wrestling, as it was once known for an entire generation of fans who started watching that company from the beginning. I'm talking about Don West, the unmistakable voice alongside Mike Tenay of TNA wrestling, really throughout most of its first decade of existence. A lot of us also know him from his famous sports collectibles show in the 1990s. Don passed away. Uh, just before the new year, also just passing away right before the the year ended, the flying Greek, Mike Pappas, who a lot of people remember best as uh, a mid-card, maybe lower mid-card wrestler, a journeyman wrestler, a fixture on the Worldwide Wrestling Federation circuit during the early to mid-1970s. He also worked a lot of other territories where he got even a slightly better push in places like Florida and St. Louis, uh, worked for Nick Goulas, who helped him get his working papers and get into the United States. Uh, Mike Pappas, who wrestled from 1968 to 1978 and is a fixture in the memories of a lot of pro wrestling fans of the 1970s. Mike passed away. At the very end of 2022, our condolences and our best wishes and prayers go out to the friends and family of both Don West and Mike Pappas. Now I'd like to get to the conversation at hand, the first Shut Up and Wrestle conversation of 2023. Mike Foley is one of those interesting individuals that you can only find here on Shut Up and Wrestle, like the Deborah Jazways of the world and the Keith Caramellos of the world and the Mike Fazioli's of the world. Those people that I worked with at WWE who have some great stories to tell. You are going to hear some fascinating things in the next hour. Mike Foley did some... Memorable work at WWE, including coming up with the Get the F Out campaign. He named Doink the Clown, Bastion Booger, among other people, Sparkplug Holly. He was an art director at some of the most iconic photo shoots, WWE photo shoots of the 1990s and early 2000s. He even helped to design the Titantron stage uh, entrance for Monday Night Raw that that went into effect during the Attitude Era. But enough about all those accolades. I'd like to actually get to the interview itself so you could hear Mike talk about all that stuff himself to me. So I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so this week it is my pleasure once again to welcome somebody to Shut Up and Wrestle that I used to work with when I worked at WWE and uh, somebody who worked in a corporate behind-the-scenes capacity, and I know we've got a lot of listeners that enjoy that type of a show. If this is, if that's the type of show you like, if you're interested in hearing those behind-the-scenes stories, then this is going to be one for you because my guest 
This week was a senior creative director at WWE. He worked in the creative services department. Also in later years became a licensee after he officially left the company, but which we'll be getting into. Um, and his name is Michael Foley, not to be confused, which we will also talk about, not to be confused with Mick Foley. Maybe one day I'll get Mick. But, oh, darn. But, but <laughs> Mike Foley. Oh, God, I thought this was Mick. <laughs> Mike Foley, who, as I said, uh, he worked in creative services. He was involved on the artistic side of things, uh, cr- crafting merchandise and things of that nature. We'll be getting into. So if if that is the stuff that you love to hear about, you're going to love this show. So, Mike, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. And I think it's funny that we start with the Mick thing because I remember, I don't know how much you you hated these constant mix-ups happening, but I even remember one time you told me that um, when you somebody was coming to the company, uh, somebody was coming to the building or whatever, and and they and you were giving them a tour. And so the person they said to the person, Oh, well, we're gonna have Mike Foley show you around. And they thought that it was going to be Mick Foley, like 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 Mick just hangs around the office. Oh yeah, and he gives tours of the office to people that come by. Yeah, it's, it's convalescing from his last steel cage match. You know, <laughs> he's just got nothing else to do but give tours at Titan Tower. <laughs> right. So what I want to talk about too is to give people a time frame. Now I know you had mentioned to me. Um, that you started, you said you started as a photo director. Was that how you originally I, I was started? A, I, came, uh, I came on as a photo editor. Photo and, editor. Okay. Um, you know, the the situation was I wanted to kind of get into a job um, in the New York area. So I came down from upstate New York and the position that they offered was a photo editor. So I worked for Steve Taylor in the department and it was dealing with all the outside companies that were producing merchandise and, the fo- and they needed someone to handle the majority of the material that they would produce was the photos from the matches and they needed someone to kind of edit that material and put it on product. So I started there and then not within a year from there, they had some cutbacks and Steve wanted to keep me. So him and Debbie Bonanzio, they decided like, like why don't we move Mike over to creative services and have his salary paid by one of our outside licensing agents to keep me on staff. So then I got in creative services and that kind of was where I stayed, you know, for the rest of my time there doing, you know, product development and licensing. And people, you know, people who listen to the show and I've heard a lot of the guests that I've had who were who were company employees, they're probably saying, whoa, boy, every, everybody Solomon has on is either from publications or creative services. While that's not entirely true, I will say there's a reason for that. Obviously, I worked in publications. And the publications department, too, um, always worked closely, or at least to my experience did, with creative services. I mean, technically, I I don't know if you knew this. Maybe you did. I originally was a creative services hire. Debbie Bonanzio, who was longtime head of creative services, she interviewed me along with Barry Werner, who was head of publications. And in the beginning, it was like this tug of war. And Barry won, and I, and I wound up being full time with with publications. But those departments always were like hand in hand. I thought. Well, Brian, when I first started there, the photo department pretty much mm. um, was the beginning of the creative services because Vince had used the magazine as an extension from the programming. So out of that, like Steve Taylor, the photo department, and everything was generated for the magazine. The artwork was pretty much extra stuff that came along that they needed for a pay-per-view poster. 
So it was an ancillary function. And then when Debbie um, in operating creative services, we got up to a 35, 40 person department, you know, and what company has ever had that largest staff of creative people and even an in-house magazine, you know, it was kind of like unheard of in our field to have that many people from a creative source that was on staff. But Vince pretty much cherished the fact that our department was something that he didn't have auditors coming in there auditing us on what we were doing to make it that we were, you know, worth being on salary. Vince right. thought of us as being like part of the atomic energy of that company. You know, so whatever we needed, Debbie was funny back in the days at, on Summer Street. She used to refer to it like that she was hiring. It was like gerbils. She'd turn <laughs> around. She didn't know who these freelancers were. We didn't have enough people or places to put people where they sat. It was just proliferating like crazy in the early 90s, and the company was just growing in leaps and bounds with its popularity. And for people that don't know, you know, a lot of people obviously would probably know the current Titan Tower, which has been WWE's headquarters on on East Main Street in Stamford. You could see it from I-95, that, that big – they show it on TV all the time anyway, yeah. too. But before that, they were on Summer Street, which is kind of like the main commercial drag in, or one of them in, in downtown Stamford, whereas the tower is a little bit out of the way. It's kind of in like a residential area, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, it was formerly an operation that was held by IBM. And mm-hmm. I remember when we moved there, it was in May. I had been hired in October of 1990. In May, we moved over there and it was a big <laughs> big operation to move the entire company over there and i didn't know it was that early i i, I even i didn't know it was 1990 1990 yeah. is when they moved there. wow i thought it was yeah. i thought it was a couple of years later hmm. no it was like not long after actually it's 91 may of 91 when we moved in oh 91 and okay 91 i had just been there like several months and it was this large i mean the building was very big at the time and they rented out space to uh, on another floor for a couple other companies that we didn't even have the full the thing fully you know taken over at the time but um yeah it was it was an interesting time back then because the company had a number of long-standing employees from holly hill over in greenwich at the time right and many of those you may have you may have worked with after you arrived but um it was making a transition from being a smaller operation to being this corporate entity you know that Vince was growing. So the Holly, so, and, and I've tried to kind of map this timeline out myself. So they were in on summer street in Stanford, which was sort of like an office space. Now when, yeah. when they, when they started with Vince's at, with Titan sports, I know Vince had originally way, way back. He'd been in Massachusetts. He was in Cape. Yeah. He was in the Cape Cod Coliseum. Then he bought his father out in 82. And then I think that's when they kind of established themselves in Greenwich. But do you know anything about that location, that Holly Hill location? What what, what was it? What, was it very small or what, what was it, it like? It was a pretty small operation. I don't remember. It was on Holly Hill. That's all I remember. And right. In Gail Greenwich. Gail Tarzi and a few others um, that worked there um, used to talk about it. And it was a very small operation. And when I arrived, they had... They had moved over to Summer Street in Stamford, and that building that they had there was fairly small. By the time I arrived in 90, they had outgrown that. We had an ancillary building that they were renting from across the street um, on Summer Street. So we just had to walk back and forth across the street on Summer Street to do stuff with Vince at, you know, his in the other corporate office. So they had quickly outgrown that transition from 
moving from Holly Hill to Summer Street. And by the time we moved to uh, Titan Tower, um, they were on track. They had been adding things like the World Bodybuilding Federation and, you know, it was growing with leaps and bounds. <laughs> now, I know that, um, you know, um, you may not, I don't know how, how closely you follow it, but even within the last, I would say, 10 years, maybe a little more, they've been expanding even beyond the tower. Yeah. They, they have office space now across the street on East Main Street. They also have, for anybody that's been in downtown Stanford, there's now a big operation they're setting up there. You can see the logo from from the highway in, in downtown Stanford, where I, I don't think it's a move from Titan Tower. I think it's more like just an expansion where they're going to have, I think they want to have a downtown presence, but I mean, they do just keep getting bigger and bigger. I remember, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but when they first moved to the tower and I was not to make you feel old, Mike, but I was a kid in high school <laughs> when that happened, but I was, I was a big fan. And I remember Hulk Hogan, I forget what show it was. He was doing this promo and, you know, those over-the-top promos he would do. And he made reference to the tower and how he was going to go down I-95. I think he was going to take the tower. He was going to put, you know, the brand-new, shiny, beautiful Titan Tower, brother. And he was going to strap, strap <laughs> it on his back, which I guess was a metaphor for what he was doing anyway. And just, and and like, carry it, carry it on his back, <laughs> you know. I remember thinking even then, I got to see this place. I got to go to this place. And, and like... Eight, nine years later, I'd be working in, in that building. So. so, Brian, you weren't one of the kids that had their parents drive you to the tower and have your picture taken outside. I used to see that from my window on the entrance, on the side entrance, where you would see, oh, there's another family with some kids that have driven to Stanford to have their picture taken with Titan Tower. And it was just, you know, there was nothing. It, what was funny was you drive by there now and they've kind of done a little bit more with the lobby. It looks much more palatial. They have and statues. Was, they have like the statues yeah. of the legends in there now. Yeah. And before they would only have like a pay-per-view banner in there. Right. And I think like Melissa Costabile was always getting fans that would walk in there and be asking about like kind of tours of the place. And she's like, well, no, really, there aren't any real tours going because <laughs> well, there was nothing really there to show. I remember when now when I now you cannot those were there's revolving doors there. Those revolving doors have not been in operation for many years, probably for exactly what you're describing. And I think also news crews and things just wandering in. When I went for my first interview there, it was October 99. It was right after they went public. I think actually it was the day they went public. And I was able to, I didn't even know about the parking lot. I parked on the street. I went around the corner and parked <laughs> down the street. I had no idea. I'm from the city. We don't know about parking lots. We park on the street. So I parked on the street. I just walked right in the front door. I walked through the revolving doors and I went to the desk and it wasn't, Melissa was already gone by then. She was already in working for Barry. It was Heather Lubin, who was the, okay. new, she who, <laughs> who later also went on to great things with the company as well. But um, I, I just walked right in and I know that didn't last much longer after that, where they said, okay, no more coming in through the revolving door. We're going to lock this down a little bit. Yeah, it became because I think with Stone Cold doing some of those scenes there in yeah. the lobby, it became one of those things where it became kind of a uh, mecca for fans to kind of come and, hey, we could walk in and see what was going on here. It was interesting. I, 
I never went down there as a kid. I, I never, it's honestly, the, uh, I know a lot of people do. The first time I ever went there was for that interview. But we would always think it was funny, too, when we worked there. People would make these pilgrimages. I remember there was a Japanese wrestling magazine that we used to get in the office because, you know, we had connections to the photographers. And I think it was Gong, Weekly Gong, or it might have been a different one. But they had the, some of their editors from Japan. I don't know. Maybe they were going to New York City. I, I can't imagine they came to America just to go to Stamford. But they took pictures of themselves standing in front of the building. They were standing in front of, like, you know, the, the the local restaurants, which would be places we would just go for lunch on a lunch break, you know, and you're going, these people, they came from the other side of the earth to do this, to stand in front of like Smokey Joe's Cafe or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know? Or, or or you know, Titan Tower or the little like no-tell motel next door to the tower. And uh, they, they, people would do it. I have a good story regarding that in that, yeah. um, you know, I used to always work, it'd be kind of late, you know, we always would do like extra hours and I would go down talking to you guys down the hall or something. And I'd like leave in about seven o'clock or so. And, you know, you'd be leaving the building and you never knew, you'd see some of these people outside, you know, trying to come in or what have you. You had to be careful because of, you didn't want them to get access into the building. But this one time I'm leaving and I see this guy, he's kind of waves me down as I'm leaving on the, and the one exit. And who is it? I recognize the guy and I'm looking at him and I'm like, this guy looks familiar. And I don't know, a lot of your fans may not be football fans, but Mark Gastineau of yes. the New York Jets sack exchange was standing at the entrance with his girlfriend and his car trying to get in and find a way into the building because he wanted to talk to Vince McMahon about pitching an idea that he had for being a character on the programming. And I'm talking to Mark Gastineau outside at the entrance of the building and I'm like, oh, hi, how are you doing? And he gets a lasso out of his car and he shows me he can do like this lasso trick and he's got a pretty girlfriend. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, like, who am I going to have him talk to? So I I basically directed him up to who else at that time was still there during the business hour. Beth Zaza, of course, Vince's assistant. Yeah. I said, Beth, um, I wouldn't normally do this, but I'm uh, there's a fella down here who is a fairly well-known character you know, Mark Gastineau, the former New York Jets, would like to talk to Vince. So I put him on the phone with her and they made plans for him to come back and, you know, do an audition for Vince. Because who's walking right into the building to try to get a job? At, that's how popular the company was, you know, around 2000, you know? Yes. And 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 two, to, to set up the time frame there, I'm glad you mentioned that because we kind of we overlapped only very slightly, actually, because I was there from 2000 to 2007. And you were there as an employee in the building. You were there from 1990 or 91, I guess, uh, to 2002. So there was that two-year window that we were there at the same time. But, I mean, that period there, when I started there, it was right at the height of the Attitude Era. Some people might even say creatively it had already like slightly peaked. For, from a business point of view, there was still going to be another at least year of just bonanzas up until you know people point to 2001 with wrestlemania 17 the astrodome buying wcw all that stuff happening and then you start to see well the you know there's the world the the restaurant there's the xfl and sort of like the bloom starts to come off the rose a little bit a couple of years after that you know 
Well, do you think that was because we lost competition? I think Vince and the programming was always better when there was competition and he had a direct opponent in Ted Turner and WCW. After they had beaten them, there was only, it was pretty much the TV show Survivor in reality (laughs) TV that became their their real rival. And they basically kind of just floundered after that in the direction of, they didn't really have a strong opponent. I think Vince always did much better when you pressed him to come out with programming that was going to, you know, keep them alive. And it wasn't only the competition. I thought what also helped was you had a back and forth of talent. So you had a place where you could steal the talent from and bring in these yeah. big, these stars that fans already knew. So it helped. But it also helped because if your talent was getting stale, they could kind of go somewhere else and then maybe come yeah. back later and they'd be fresh again, you know, and that was gone. But like you said, there was, I remember there was like a year in between, and this might've been right around the time you left, but there was a year in between they bought WCW, they bought ECW, there's no more competition. And then a year later, they come up with the brand extension idea, which was almost like a way to create your own competition. And I know people have different stands on this, but I was against it from the beginning. I just remember feeling like I understand why you're doing it. You want to create this illusion of competition. It's Raw versus SmackDown. But to yeah. me, it felt so artificial. It felt like the fans are are going to see right through this. It's clearly the same company. They're not. They're going to go. Well, why are they competing against each other? It's it's a much harder sell than two companies. It just felt. It always felt very forced to me to do that. Well, you know, it would have been smarter if they had said, hey, Shane, you take SmackDown and you run that operation and you treat it as though you're Ted Turner. And it would have been a smarter independent operation if they let him go and do what he's doing on his show and let Vince do his own. And it would have been a much more American League versus National League kind of operation. Because like you said, it was so forced that it was all coming out of the same company. And they made it try to seem like there was some sort of rivalry between the programs. And I think the fans can see through that. You know, they could see through that right away. Also, because there had never really been a rivalry before. And not only that, but when you start talking about brands, this is what bothered me, too. It's much more common now. We sort of live in a different world. But like the idea of branding and treating Raw and SmackDown as brands or even WWE as a brand, that's a very marketing corporate kind of view that most fans, in my opinion, didn't really hold at the time. In fact, for years, the company had created this illusion, right? that the WWF was some type of sanctioning body, like a sports league or a like, yeah. like, the, like the NFL or, 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 you know, some type of like major league baseball. They didn't want to draw attention to the fact that they were an entertainment company. So when you start talking about brands, it just feels like, I don't know, you're, you're, you're uh, exposing a little too much to the fans. Like, like, Oh, these are just brands of entertainment. This is not, this is not in any way a sporting event you're watching. We, we want to make sure you know you're watching entertainment. You know, it's like rubbing your face in it a little too much. Well, I mean, I have to wonder if Vince really had a trajectory or he just did what he knew. Because working at that operation, I enjoyed working at the company because it was a privately run operation. And he treated as though it was a delicatessen and he was going to make everybody's sandwich and make sure that his 
uh, customers were happy. And he did not treat it as though it was a large corporate operation like you see in the rest of these worlds like today with Disney handling the Marvel Enterprise and the Star Wars Enterprise. Vince had his own entity that he generated so much creativity out of there. And the programming was just stellar. And I was never a wrestling fan. I always became um, enamored with the fact that the dedication of the employees and the talent that worked there propelled this operation. And you had to wonder, did Vince, he was the leading force, but he had a collective group of people there that brought that to such stardom. Like Madison Avenue didn't really know what to do with us. I think mm. you had talked on some of your other shows where like, we're just a wrestling rag. It's a place where people treated us like, you know, we weren't of any value. And it was like, all of a sudden, when you start making money, Madison Avenue was like, hey, let's kind of get involved with with this company. And I can still remember the first time when um, Randy Savage got the deal with Slim Jim, snap into a Slim Jim. And that became one of those one of those ways to make money by doing licensed product on the side. That was something additional that Vince had tapped into and. I was involved with all of those companies that basically Vince said, these performers need to provide the time for you, Mike, if you need to get a photo of them eating a Slim Jim. And so we can't take them off the road, but you come backstage and get their time to do a photo shoot and let me know if they give you a problem. And this was this escalated all to the all to the way when uh, Scott Hall, or uh, Kevin Nash tried to get me fired once. <laughs> it was a situation where... I don't know if I told you the story, but um, we were, I was working with Acclaim Video, and the, what it evolved was Acclaim was making a lot of video games, and they wanted to make some spectacular commercials, which were similar to what we used to do for the programming, and we're in the Brooklyn Naval Yards. Oh, This yes. is before a trip that they're going on the European tour with. So I have Undertaker, I have Brett, I have Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash there, you know, Diesel. And it's a twenty. It's a twelve-hour shoot. We get there at like six at night, and we're going to be there to six in the morning. And then the guys are going to leave on a limo on a on a you know on a trip to the to the European tour. And so they have this elaborate shoot for this acclaim video where they've got vultures that they're going to have on the side of the of the turnbuckles. And this guy thinks he's like Martin Scorsese that's directing this little commercial. He's got so many elaborate things going on that, you know, Undertaker and um, Bret Hart are talking to me. And they go, how long is this going to go on for? Isn't this like a 30-second commercial? <laughs> how much is he planning on shooting? You know, and it's a little bit difficult to get these guys warmed up. I remember they started wrestling in the ring and Scott Hall, he was a little bit, it was a little chilly that night and he tended to pull a muscle. And then that's when, do you um, mean Kevin? Kevin Nash? Oh, you're talking about Kevin Nash or Scott Hall? Scott Hall was, uh, he nearly pulled a muscle. Oh, and okay. Kevin, and that's when, uh, Kevin Nash got mad at me because he goes, what do you think we are? A bunch of circus monkeys. And I'm like, well, you know, they didn't provide at that sh at that shoot any talent relations, former wrestlers that they normally would. I was kind of left out on a lurch to kind of direct these guys as to what they needed as a liaison to the company. But um, it was and the Brooklyn Naval Yards was a dump at the time. This is the ring was set up in the basin of one of the former, you know, boat basins where they used to build the boats for World War Two and stuff. But um, and it was. It was a funny situation because um, the talent got mad at me 
And I remember um, Undertaker, Mark Calloway, came over at the end and he said, hey, apologies for like, you know, this guy's getting a little upset with you. He goes, we just didn't have anybody to direct our, our you know, our wrath at. Because <laughs> it was an elaborate shoot. But um, this is what happens when you have a company that has these celebrity talent become popular and they get put into these games and they collect a royalty by being, you know, their, their likenesses are on these products. And so they have to kind of give part of their time. And as these guys get more and more popular, you know, they're being grabbed at for their time all the time. And this is what I kind of saw where they were really, they didn't have enough time in the day to do all the stuff that they were being asked to. And it was, it was kind of funny that, you know, Diesel at the time was the low man on the totem pole for him to be the one that was irate and then go to the, you know, kind of report me to Vince that I should be fired. And what was funny was I was called up to Vince's office regarding it. And um, he had said to me, he goes, don't worry about it, Mike. He goes, you just asked them to do what I, you know, you know what you wanted, wanted them to do for the commercial. He goes, making them work is what they're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's just, you know, you got to be told that you got to be working. You know? Right. So he, he took your side on that. He wasn't going to, you know, oh, yeah, tell you out. <laughs> I think you probably experienced the same thing too. Vince was, he had two personas. He had the mm, yes. <laughs> talent relations and the owner of this company that, you know, was a corporate operation that had a lot of other things going on. So Vince, I always, I never had any problem with Vince. He always seemed very supportive of whatever we were doing. And um, I worked with him on a number of projects and one of the funnier ones that I worked on with him was we used to always do, um, a music CD entrance theme that would be released around Black Friday every year. And we'd be waiting for Jim Johnson at TV to come up with what we were going to put on the album. And I had to kind of come up with artwork for what we were going to put on it. And it was always down to the wire because Jim, for some reason, couldn't get his act together to kind of <laughs> get this thing out. But he, he always would get it done at the last minute, but we would never have any advance warning. But I remember meeting with Jim and um, Vince in his office, and we were trying to come up with an idea for this album. It was always top what you did last year, top what you did last year. And so we were just spitballing ideas. And I remember um, Vince loved this idea that I had on the page. It was called the title of the album would be called Penetrator. And Vince goes, oh, I love that. He goes, I just want get get like one of the wrestler's fists and we want to have it kind of thrusting across the album cover with the words penetrator kind of like broken. And Jim Johnson said, I don't think Walmart will actually agree to that because it's just too. And Vince would be like, we can't have like these large corporations censoring our creativity. And so Vince goes, "Okay, well, Mike, we probably should have another backup. And he goes, why don't you use this other one on the sheet? He goes, aggression. And you can have like the, a broken window or something. And Jim Johnson was smiling and he goes, I think that'll probably work. But it kind of harkens back to the days when um, John Mellencamp was one of the first performers that had to have his, he had a, I think it was like a demon or an angel or something that was on one of his album covers that Walmart had stopped. So it was, it was definitely showing you how corporations can kind of censor product. And it was... In the end, we ended up uh, producing the album that was called Aggression. And I said, why don't we just call it Drive-By Shooting? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, but that's very true. I mean, I don't know if people realize how much we were at the whim of, and Walmart specifically. I remember yeah. sometimes feeling like, 
do we work for Walmart? Like, like Walmart had so much pull. Like, I'm sure you remember the incident with Al Snow and Head. Oh, yeah. Somebody complained. There was a mom who complained. It became a big, I mean, it became a big story even on online and everything about Al Snow's figures getting pulled. And then it became more like scrutiny on WWF stuff in general because of that. They had so much um, say, those giant corporations that would carry so much of our stuff. Still do, I'm sure. And I, I'm I'm really surprised you haven't gotten Al Sarvin to be on the show. I mean, really, he's doing comedy now. He's doing stand up. I mean, are you in contact with him at all? He, I am. He so Al Sarvin for for we smart people. That's Al Snow. But I'm in. I'm. I have been in touch with him. He is on my short list of people that are going to come on here. I did talk to him when I wrote my last book on the Sheik because he grew up in the Midwest and he was a fan of the Sheik as a kid. But Al is. One of the great people to talk to. I found you got to have him on. Yeah, tell him that you had me on, and then that will really stick in his craw. That you what, had me on <laughs> what, what I he didn't make the top fifty. <laughs> what I love about him, I know uh, that's what I'm starting to get to now. Now that I'm at about fifty, people are like, "Wait a minute, you already did fifty of these things. You didn't have me on yet." Yeah, but but he's hard to get. He's busy these days. I don't know if you do. You remember OVW, which was like one of the yeah. developmental territory. He owns it now. Oh, does he? So, so Al, uh, they no longer have a relationship with WWE, but but he owns and operates it. So he's got a lot on his plate these days. But I I always loved Al because he's very um, da- very approachable and friendly. I don't know what your experience was, Mike, but down to earth. And I find a lot of cases, not that the wrestlers were ever were threatening or whatever, but they weren't always the most down to earth and approachable and friendly people at all times. And I always found him to be that. And I, I always love talking to him. Well, I was going to say, Ale makes my top three on talent. That was the most professional that I ever worked with. Yes. Ale I would, I would agree. Cause he was one of the guys that you couldn't get a major talent off the road to do toy fair in February. And we used to have him in the toy fair building with us. And he was standing there with head and he would meet the buyers. This was back in a different era when they would do Toy Fair in February and you'd have all the buyers from these companies come in to the Toy Fair building and Al was standing in a room and, you know, he was basically kind of a pitch man to all of these buyers. And the fact that you would get some of these other young executives that kind of liked wrestling, Al was perfect. He was very presentable, very good businessman. And it was a situation where that's how I kind of got to know Al. And he had a lot of really good ideas. I mean, he he had a lot of opportunities to make some merchandise. And I think he kind of the spotlight kind of shone on him and Taz when they were doing tough enough for MTV. And you saw that L and Taz and what they brought to the table, a lot of these guys that really helped the operation of the business were, were like instructors to the younger, younger talent. And they showed you what it took to kind of make it in this business. And he was a very creative guy too. I, I remember he was a big comic book fan i would always see him when i'd see him on the road he'd be reading graphic novels or comics and and he just had that kind of fertile imagination uh, that i i'm imagining must have been of great help you know when he was working yeah. with you obviously yeah yeah he was he's funny i mean he had some ideas that he wanted to have like a horde of midgets um come out and beyond raw, I remember him just just spitballing ideas about different stuff. When you're standing there, it's those t- 
times when you get to talk to some of these talent when you're backstage and you're standing at like the toy fair or something and you hear their ideas about what's going on with the business. They had the same inspiration that we had as people at the corporate tower that they, a lot of these guys were very creative and had a lot of, you know, ideas to, uh, you know, to be on the, on the programming and get somewhere. It was very difficult. And speaking of that, I think we, uh, a couple other people had talked about like one of the most memorable I, things that I can recall from having worked there was was not the the death of Owen Hart, but the fact that what he had done once for us, which was in the same vein, we used to be over um, on Long Island doing green screen capture for the video games, and we would bring in guys and they would spend the day there jumping around in front of the screen for the for the video and what have you, and it took a lot of time and scheduling to get them there, and I remember when it was the opportunity to bring in Owen Hart there was a really bad snowstorm up in Canada and he had to come from Calgary. And he, I remember he had to kind of, we didn't think he was going to make it because we had scheduled him. And we said, if we didn't get him, he probably wouldn't be able to be in this game. He busted his ass to get there. And I remember the story that he had to try to get through the Toronto airport to get his connecting flight to long Island. And the fact that here's this guy it was very similar to what happened in his in the end when he had the accident as Blue Blazer and he fell, that he was going overboard to get what he could do in this career track path to make some money and do something more. And the company had asked him, hey, you want to you want to be a performer, want to do this Blue Blazer character? He went above and beyond. And a lot of these characters and talent would do this because it was a very difficult business to get into. And then it ended up that, you know, as much as he was pushing himself to do these different things, it ended up to be his, you know, his un- un- unfortunate end. Yeah, because they're, most of them are very open, maybe too open, because like you said, they, they want to please, they want to make sure they don't lose their spot. I mean, it's a tough yep. business. If you lose your spot, you're out of luck. You know, I mean, hell, they'd be afraid to even go home if they got hurt because they might lose their spot on the card or whatever. And something and and Owen too especially you know he that was he passed about nine months before I got there but there was still kind of the aftershock of it when I got there he was somebody who no matter what and I don't think he was thrilled about doing that stuff I really don't I think it was almost there's a lot of people almost feel like it was kind of like a rib on him like they were trying to make him look ridiculous um on purpose but he was not going to blink. He was going to do what was asked of yeah. him and beyond to be as professional a, as he could be. Oh, there's a lot of that rivalry. I think especially you could see some of the enmity between um, Triple H and Chris Jericho. You know, mm. Chris Jericho was great on the mic. He was one of the talent that I think that after Stephanie and Triple H kind of took over the operation, they really put their thumb down on Chris Jericho. He was one of our best talent. You know, Y2J a character that was good on the mic, in the ring, flashy. And they basically pretty much stifled him. And he's, you know, he's still wrestling these days, but no longer with them. But it's a situation where once you get to the top, it's a doggy dog world there. And I think that even though Owen Hart was, you know, part of the Hart family, it was tough for even for him to get, you know, a leg up on some of these guys, you know, so you did what you had to do. I remember when we were in New York City and we were doing another music album recording, we had some of the performers there. Scott Hall was there. Scott Hall comes to me and he goes, hey, Mike, 
do you mind if I leave early because I have an opportunity to do a house show over in New Jersey? And this was before the day of like cell phones. And I'm like, well, sure. He goes, I have, I got a message that I could probably do a house show. And meanwhile, it's a situation where we got to get him a taxi to get out of Manhattan and where we were in the village to get over to do. He said he had to get, he was going to make like, like $400 to do a house show. And I'm like, that's fine. I didn't want to keep him because like he, what we were doing wasn't really that necessary to have him there. But this is a guy that everybody knew as Razor Ramon. And he's running off because he wants to make 400 bucks, you know, to a yeah. point where this is the way these guys live their lives. And it's they were live action stuntmen that lived on the road. And it's a very difficult life. And as you see them on TV and stuff, they are basically pretty much killing themselves to make a living for us. And that's what you kind of realize the business is about. And it always was the nature of the business that I think obviously most fans or outsiders don't realize. And sometimes they get shocked by it because, like you mentioned, the Razor Ramon, Scott Hall story. These are people who became very famous, like like famous, like in some cases, movie star famous. And yet what people didn't know was that the lifestyle didn't always or didn't at all match up with that. Like I remember, you know, I uh, forget who it was. Uh, oh, man, it was. um Oh, one of the somebody way after you were there. Maybe it was someone will correct me on this, but it might have been Sasha Banks or Bailey or one of the more recent uh, female stars on an interview talked about casually mentioning on, you know, like Entertainment Tonight or whatever, having to book her own hotels on the road. Oh, God. And they stopped her. They stopped her. The interviewer goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's back up a little bit. You're telling me that you have to book your own travel? And she started going into the whole thing. Well, you know, they book your flights for you, but you have to book your own hotel and you're responsible for your expenses on the road and blah, blah, blah. And the interviewer's mouth is is hanging open because these people in, in most people's minds are like rock stars. And you're going, yeah. what? this does not match up to what I imagine this life to be like. Well, I think that's one of the, the biggest um, injustices of the of the business in that it requires a lot of risk by the performers. You know, it's a situation where they're all independent contractors and they're vying to get an opportunity on that stage. And it's one of the things that kind of turned me against it a little bit is the fact that you have a large corporation, which is especially at that time when you came in, they're making a tremendous amount of money. And of course, you know, performers like, you know, Hulk Hogan and Rock and Stone Cold are making good money. It's a lot of those other guys that are on the lower part of the card that are killing themselves to kind of even show up. I was always amazed that when I would go to um, the, the taping at an event and you would, it was like a flea circus. There was no big truck that showed up like, you know, it was the ice capades where all the people come out and they take out. It was like everybody comes there independently, like a bunch of little fleas, and they gather at the arena and put on this this marvelous show. You have independent contractors for the TV department that are setting up the lighting rig. And there was only how many? Probably what, like maybe 40 of us that were staff employees from TV and what have you that were the core portion working with all these independent contractors putting together this show. And you would be standing there hours before, like around four o'clock in the afternoon, thinking like, okay, is this going to come together? And before you knew it, all of a sudden the light rigging was off, the show came on, and it was like, okay, we're doing a show, everybody. And the fans were there, and they never knew anything different. 
Yeah, it is incredible. Even to this day, I still think about that. The amount, and it's more moving parts than ever now to 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 uh, to put that show on. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, which I I would kick myself if I didn't get to. Um, a lot of times these days, I don't know if you've been watching some of these um, documentaries that they do now. Like A and E will do these biographies of WWE talent and. Vice TV has been doing wrestling stuff, but it's become a thing now, especially when WWE is participating. They own all the intellectual property and stuff. Let's say they're doing something on Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Undertaker. They will show some of the early kind of creative services, um, sketches, illustrations, concept designs and things for their characters to the point where fans now are getting to see this a lot more. I was curious if you were or were ever involved in that type of stuff, the designing or the or the conceptualizing of oh, some yeah. <laughs> of, of these characters. Who could be some that you think people might be interested to well, hear about? We used to always get um, a request that there was a new talent coming on board and they needed a name for the character. So we used to always get solicited solicitations to like come up with drawings. I used to work with Tom Fleming, one of our freelance illustrators, and coming up with like costume ideas and different things. I have, to my credit, a couple of characters that I basically put on a list, and they became almost like you know infamous names in the in the business. There was one that was a character that was a clown that was known as Doink. And I put the name Doink on the list and apparently it got picked and he became, you know, became legend. You know, so we would come up with some of these different names. One of the ones that I'm not so uh, basically, you know, proud of is a character that they did for Bob Holly, which was Sparky Plug. <laughs> if you remember that <laughs> yes, character. That was you, huh? Everybody, everybody back then had to have a side gimmick. Brian, you weren't just a wrestler, you were a race car driver or you were a clown. This was what they had to do in the mid 90s to kind of get some of these characters over. And I never forget that poor Tom, he had to draw this character for Giant, remember Giant Gonzalez when yes. he came in and they wanted to make him like Sasquatch and it was everybody in the department was pretty much cringing when you know, Tom had to draw this this <laughs> diagram of the of the outfit. They had like this body stocking that he was supposed to wear that looked like he was like some sort of like, you know, Bigfoot character. And we're all like kind of going, I think that was the pinnacle of it falling off, that it was like, yeah, this this really isn't very doing very good. There was another character that I named at one point that was very, very short-lived. His name was Bastion Booger. I oh, don't yeah. know if you remember him in there but there was a, a number of these brian back in the day when vince was scratching and clawing because we had departed from hulk and a number of randy savage and a number of other characters and they were trying to come up with an idea for some of these these you know these guys to have as a gimmick but it was around that time that some of the characters i think you had talked about it before where steve austin kind of was given some of these ideas and he was like, oh, my God, this is I can't do this. I can't step out there and try to do this character. And he's basically his character evolved out of his attitude of who Steve Austin really was. And it was moving away from some of these ideas that Vince had wanted us to do in creative services, which were kind of gimmicks. And Austin basically found his niche because of his own character. And it kind of launched us into a, the attitude era where a lot of the performers 
stepped above and beyond and became kind of retaliatory to the operation of the wrestling biz. Because I think what was happening in that era compared to, let's say, the era right before you came in, I mean, the 90s in WWF, especially pre-Attitude era, it's known as the time of the over the top gimmicks. Everybody, I mean, wrestlers have always had gimmicks, but like the gimmick that is so far divorced from the real person, like, like you said, every wrestler had to have another job. It was almost like, it was like this running joke of like, can't these guys make enough money being wrestlers? Why do they all need to have another separate job? But, but I found like what happened with Austin and the moving away from that, what worked with Austin was similar to what worked before that gimmick era, which is like in the era when Hogan first came in and then they got Randy Savage and Ted DiBiase and people, they were basing their gimmicks even on who they were even before they got to the WWF. It, there was some, there was some congruency and consistency yeah. like Roddy Piper, you know, who was Roddy yeah. Piper before the WWF? Well, he was Roddy Piper. So they were, they were bait. They were, you know, there was the strength and the momentum of what they already had going and I feel like with Austin, that also occurred. Like he was allowed to keep the wrestling name he had before. He was Steve Austin before. It was like an evolution. It wasn't exactly yeah. who, he, who he was, but it was an evolution of who he was. And I think people bought that a little bit more. Yeah, because it was, I think that, you know, I remember one of the main characters that I liked when I wasn't really a wrestling fan was Roddy Piper because he was just an, it was just exciting to listen to on TV compared to a lot of the other guys that would just shout into the mic. And <laughs> it was something that he brought, which was part of his ability for his, you know, on-screen presence with the mic. A lot of the other guys didn't have quite the pizzazz, you know, some of the other performers would need, and Vince thought that maybe they needed to have some sort of a side gimmick that they could kind of launch the character from. And so that's how that kind of evolved. But yeah, we, we made a lot of, we did spend a lot of money and work on coming up with sketches and ideas and costuming for, for a lot of these characters. And I think it was because Vince thought that we were evolving in the media that you had to have more of a, of a show, a showy blitz. And I have to say that when Shane came back from college and joined the company in the late nineties, he had a, a perspective of the MTV generation that the, the programming had to change a bit. It had to be a little bit more flashy. And I remember doing a sketch for them. They wanted to kind of do something where they had like pyro in a stage entrance for Raw. And I remember doing a, a little drawing for the stage that you see nowadays. That was never there. They used to come down from like, you know, a chute and come out by the bicycle racks and come up to the ring. And it had to be I think the criticism of the sketch that I had given them for the stage was that we have to kind of put this stuff on the truck so we can kind of take it to the next show. They had to kind of, if you think about that, that big arena and jumbotron that they had with all the pyro had to be disassembled that night, put on a truck and taken over to the next arena. So it was this unfolding of all of the materials that they had to kind of present and put out there that I think that the fans don't realize to assemble that and put that all on a truck every night was a tremendous amount of work. But Shane said, we've got to do something better. And it was the fact that they came out with that stage and it just got more and more convoluted. I remember when the SmackDown stage was kind of done when Bill Gortel did that one. (laughs) Holy cow, with a big fist and everything. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God. I was like, they told me that we couldn't do a couple of little panels and some light screens. <laughs> we couldn't put on the truck. 
I can remember, you know, being backstage and going, I didn't go on the road a lot, but I remember being on the road and being at a SmackDown and I'm sitting there, I'm sitting behind the stage setup, kind of underneath it, but in a position where I'm not visible, obviously. And it might've even been before the show. And I don't have anything happening at that moment. And I'm, I just kind of, I'm looking up because I want to be like, I want to see what, how do they do this thing? And I really, I couldn't believe the intricacy of it because you have the, the thing you see on TV is the giant fist breaking through glass. It looks like yeah, every single one of those pieces that's supposed to be a broken pane of glass. It's an individual piece. It's separately hung. It, it, it's got to be in the same exact position so that it is matched up with everything else around it. And they have to recreate this at, at every TV. It, it's, it was a, it was an amazing illusion that they created. You know, Brian, when I would see that setup, it basically spoke to me by saying the fact that this company must be making a tremendous amount of money because for them to assemble that and put that out there every week, it's a lot of work. That's man hours to put that together. And it was like Vince never gave us the impression that we were hurting for money. Mm. It was like, don't worry about it. Whatever, whatever he wanted, you put you put together for him. <laughs> and and the the whole entrance thing, you know, you're talking about the ramp, and I, I um, there was never, you know, before that, there was never a ton of thought or elaboration. It seemed to be put into the actual place that the wrestlers would emerge from. Like you said, it would just be like the, the opening to the locker room, you know, and you just yeah. see, you can see people milling around in there. There'd be maybe like a, just a barricade to keep the fans back. There wasn't much to it. Even the Tron, the original Tron was very small. It was a little yep. panel and then it just got bigger and bigger, more elaborate. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, doing the giant ramp and doing the pyro, that was kind of like a reaction during the Monday Night War to what WCW was doing, too, with Nitro, right? I mean, yeah. because w yeah. WWF never – one thing I even remember as a kid is they almost never used pyro. That was – pyro was a big WCW thing, NWA thing going back. To me, it was something that distinguished the two products. WWF never really used a ton of pyro. And then all of a sudden, now here they are. Use This is like mid, maybe 96-ish or so. The ramp, the pyro, everything getting built up more and more elaborately. Well, you know, the, the thing was, having worked with Steve Taylor, um, who handled live event setups and doing like the photography, Vince would ask him things that were unbelievable. And Steve, you should have talked sometime because I remember him telling me the story of the hell that it was basically the, the match where Kane was fighting and they wanted to have the ring surrounded by jets of fire around it. Yeah. And Vince had pretty much told Steve Taylor that, you know, I want this done or don't expect to come back. Because, but, you know, Steve is dealing with like the fire codes of these arenas and what have you. And when you're doing, you know, pyrotechnics in these arenas, you're talking about a lot of safety precautions that you have to deal with. Just the elaborate setup of jetting gasoline or, you know, into those pipes to kind of have the jets around the around the ring. And you're dealing with the fact that none of these guys actually ever go out there and do any practice stunts before the match. It's all live. <laughs> they mm -hmm. go out there, they talk about the match and where their spots are going to be, but 
you know, you don't know where they're going to inadvertently fall. So the the risks that they would sometimes take, I was just thought, I was just amazed at how they kind of put that show together. <laughs> yeah, that that whole the Kane match with the I, the Inferno match is what they called yeah. it, where you had the Jets of Flame. I couldn't believe it either that they were able to okay it because I I remember situations where they couldn't even have a talent with like a lit cigar. If he was supposed to have a lit cigar as part of his character or whatever, yeah. it had, it had to be unlit because of the fire marshal. And now here they yeah. have jets of flame around the ring going, but you can't have a lit cigar. Just, you know, they basically, I think uh, Sean Michaels had said it best. He said, Vince, you know, where, how far, how high are you going to raise the bar? It got to the point with the attitude era that the ratings and the war with WCW got us to a point where you just kept going up and raising that bar every every week to get that programming, you know? Now, speaking of the changes that were happening, I have to ask this, and if I'm wrong, please tell me, but the story that I heard was that you came up with the idea for the Get the F Out campaign slogan. Was that you? Yeah, it was. What had transpired... Ever since I had started there, we always had trouble when we went internationally because the company as WWF legally had problems with the World Wildlife Fund. And it, the World Wildlife Fund granted us um, issue no issue in the U.S. They're a much more international European market enterprise. And when we went to the when we went into Europe to do a lot of our events there, that's when they started to raise a stink. So. Several times when I worked there, they were trying to come up with another name to adopt and change the company because the abbreviation WWF, everybody had known in the U.S., and Vince really didn't want to depart from it. So we were on pretty good terms with World Wildlife Fund until when we came out with the website and they completely just ignored the fact that we were became WWF.com. And now Wildlife Fund really started causing a lot of financial problems for us. So I don't know how many times... We spent thousands of dollars for agencies to come up with different ideas for names. And Vince always would look at these different ideas and he would shake his head. He's like, you know, we wanted him to kind of maybe go back to like calling the company Titan Sports because that's what it originally was. But he really was in love. He loved that that aggression scratch logo with the scar underneath it, which I think has become an abomination when they redid it a few years ago. Now it looks like something that's been almost like kind of homogenized. It's like that is what a, it is. Yes, that's exactly what it is. originally was. And yeah. it was a very rough looking logo. And Vince loved that. And I remember in one of the later meetings around 2000, um, Bill Gortel at TV and, and a couple of the rest of us, you know, Andrew Wilson and I, we all thought that the company was all based around Vince would say it was sports entertainment. Why don't we just change the, you know, the F to an E and called it world wrestling entertainment. A number of us had this idea. And that's when I was in a meeting with Vince and I said, why don't we just tell him to get the F out? And he started laughing. And that was when the people at TV, David Zahadi and the rest of them really weren't too keen. They thought it was a little bit too crass. I'm like, crass, crass. what are you talking about? How is that crass? So we made TV spots and T-shirts and what have you. And what was funny was that was my last hurrah in helping like rename the company. But do you get a bonus at this place? No, it's basically part of your job. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, Brian, write the article. Get on that. 
get on that plane and go to like, you know, uh, you know, Sheboygan and get that article because we need that for the next week, you know? And it was like, you just did what your job was. So the thousands of dollars they spent with these agencies that were, you know, prestigious, you know, accounts, they never came up with an idea, but the people internally, creatively knew the business best. And I think that's what Vince really, he really liked having young creative people there because they knew the biz, they knew, they got it. And they knew what the business was rather than these large companies and executives that they would bring in from other sport, sport operations. And they were, I mean, when that change happened in 1902 to WWE, I mean, they were so serious that, you know, you could not see that old WWF logo anywhere. In fact, they've kind of loosened up a little bit now. Maybe the, the lawsuit, the terms have changed or something like if they show archival footage, they no longer have to cover the old logos. Oh, yeah. It's just on new stuff going forward. So they can't Mm -hmm. produce anything that has that logo on it. But if they're showing old stuff, they can. I remember even when it first went into effect, they would give you the stink eye if you were backstage with a WWF like binder that you just happen to be like I got I got heat for that. I remember somebody coming (laughs) up to me. Somebody came up to me and said, here, you need to take a Sharpie and and cover up really the wow. F. And I'm like, are you guys kidding me? This is like the binder that I carry my papers in. Who the hell? I'm not even going to be on TV. And they, and they would say, well, you never know. We shoot things backstage. Something might get picked up. And, you know, I understand because I remember we had one thing that went out. Uh, it got missed somehow. There was some cover of a video, maybe a book. And there was an old scratch logo on it in the corner, a tiny little one that I think was on somebody's T-shirt in the crowd or whatever. And it was like a nail biting moment of like, is somebody going to lose their job or whatever? And thankfully they didn't. But it was it was that it was that serious. Well, you know, when someone puts an edict down um, and Vince tells them that, you know, we we make sure this doesn't happen. It becomes other people there that are dropping this edict that everybody needs to kind of do this. And I think when, after I left there um, and I was working as a licensee, I remember the the biggest thing that had really caused a problem was that a lot of the programming content couldn't be shown in print with certain things. It was okay to do stuff on TV, but you couldn't ever reflect it in print, which was taboo because it lives on in print, you know? And it was around the time of the incident at the Super Bowl with um, Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson with the nip slip. Yes. And that was a big issue because the FCC was going to, you know, rain down, you know, all sorts of like, you know, fines on companies on TV if they were doing stuff that was, you know, not not conforming to their codes. And I remember in trying to do stuff for the raw deal game when we would ask for different photos or things that had been produced on TV, the, you know, the photo department wouldn't release materials because it was not copacetic that that you you could see any of this like in print. And it was like, well, you did it on TV. How can we can't name this card? Why can't we say face or heel? You know, all of a sudden there was this new ethics code that you couldn't even use. Part of the game had your deck was built around face built cards or heel built cards. And we had to kind of get rid of all of that because, oh, you can't let the genie out of the bottle with some of this stuff, or you can't show somebody doing something on TV and a photo on a card, one card in a game that's being produced. So it was a, another censorship of the programming and product. 
that that had occurred. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned raw deal because I want to I wanted to get to that before we ran out of time. So we, we definitely should talk about that. But like we experienced the same thing on the magazines where they let the genie out of the bottle and then they wanted to put it back in. So we were talking about heels and faces and some behind the scenes things and say raw magazine. And then all of a sudden they decided, well, we've got to we've got to change all that. I don't know. If some of that was reflective of the changeover to Stephanie and, and Triple H or something. There was something going on where they wanted to rein it all back in again. Yep. And we all faced that issue. But but yes, for, for people that are listening to this, if you are a lover and a player of the Raw Deal WWF card game, you literally have Mike Foley to thank because Mike Fo- it was his brainchild, his baby, his creation, the whole deal. The game that I understand is beloved by Xavier Woods and many other <laughs> current WWF and other or WWE wrestlers and in general who grew up as fans and played this game. Um, that's your baby, right? Oh, yeah. I mean. My nerddom of being a geek and playing games as a kid and stuff um, turned into being, you know, something that paid off my mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to thank all the fans that, you know, supported the game. And what was funny was they were always trying to come up with ideas for product. And the thing about um, wrestling is that you don't have, like, collectible baseball cards of, like, you know, you don't have the, you know, the, the rookie card of all of these superstar baseball players that are valuable. And we used to always do trading cards, which were really of, of no value to anybody. As a kid, you might buy them and put them in these sticker books or what have you. So um, they'd always be asking for different ideas. And I had played a number of different card games that were on the market, like Magic the Gathering, which to this day is like over 30 years old and like become a, a real marketing operation of producing product. You know, so I had said, why don't we come up with like a wrestling card game? And a lot of people didn't know what I was talking about. They seemed like I was talking another language. So we had signed a license with a company that had done a game um, for Highlander. If you remember the movie Highlander. Sure. Thunder Castle was going to produce it. And we thought that they were an appropriate company because it was like a sword fighting game that they could turn into something wrestling. But they held on to the license for a year and they never did anything. And so... When I was dealing with our director of licensing at the time, Jim Bell, he said, Mike, if you've got an idea and want to do this, go ahead. Why don't you do it? So I, have a, I had a good friend that ran a comic shop um, who, is, who has since passed, Baron uh, Vangertoth. He, he was a big magic player, and I brought him in to help me out with the core engine of the game. And so we produced a game that became a fan favorite. And what was funny about it, Brian, was that the fact that we integrated a lot of the stuff that, you know, I know that like you as a fan, like we had a lot of the jargon that mm. was the title of the cards there. You could be a heel. You could be a face. And the fact that we kind of made it a simple to play game because a lot of the fans that like wrestling are not like big strategic board game type players. It was simple to play. And one of the things that I always really enjoyed about um, the operation of the game was that. We had built a community of people that played the game that really enjoyed the programming. They used to dress up as the characters. A couple of the guys would dress up as, uh, as like the smoking guns or Mick Foley or, or all sorts of different characters at a lot of these different game conventions. And they would want to have their picture taken with us at the booth and what have you. So it was still to this day, 
I have numerous friends on Facebook that I met throughout the country that were followers of the game. And unfortunately, um, they didn't really have the, the forethought on how to turn this into a digital game. Nowadays, there's all sorts of online games. And I had endeavored a number of times. I couldn't financially afford to do it myself. And I reached out to World Wrestling a couple of times to try to, I've got a lot of people that want to you know, preserve this game, but my business partner, he had contracted cancer. He eventually would die in 2008, and that would be the end of the game. And we were trying to get it online to kind of continue, but I know that there's still a fan following of the game, and it lives on with a number of people that still kind of have created their own cards. And, you know, they have a community that continues to kind of update all of the characters that we had put together in the game. And for me, it was, you know, it was it was just a, a joy to kind of create something that I, that I liked and to kind of give to the community. And a couple of the people that I knew, they ended up meeting some of their spouses. They got married from going to these game show conventions. And they said, we would wow. ever would have met if we hadn't gotten, you know, played this silly game. So it's kind of kind of funny. It's fun. And, and now you, uh, I know you were saying that you, you left the company as an employee in '02. Now the game itself, when did when did it launch? Two thousand. Yeah, we had started around ninety nine two thousand, and okay. we had an injunction from uh, WCW. They Hasbro wanted to come out with their own game for WCW. And they thought that we were infringing upon a license that they had for a game. So they kept us from coming to the market for about six months. And what ended up happening was they were, it was the reach of this corporate, you know, fight between the two companies at the time when Hasbro was trying to keep us from, you know, operating. And eventually what was funny, they, they put their product on the market. It kind of floundered and never even had an expansion to it. And so then when we launched, um, you know, it had 25 different expansions and lasted over nine years. So it was one of the more popular games on the market at the time. And let me. Uh, yeah, I mean, in WCW, especially if you're talking 2000, I mean, they were really in their death throes by that point. So, I mean, their yeah. their popularity had tanked. So that probably helped you guys out because you were you had the more popular product. But let me ask you this now. You said now you left the company in 02 and you're continuing on now as a licensee because this is your game until the game is finally discontinued. Um, now, we both know and many people know WWE as a company kind of really works their best to own everything and control everything. And you don't have any say or control or, or right of ownership over anything you create for them. Believe me, I, I ran into that brick wall myself. How in the world, if you don't mind me asking, did you pull this off that you were able to say raw deal is my thing and I, 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 I will be a part of it even though I'm not working for you anymore? How did that come to be? Well, you know, the situation was they were pretty ignorant of what it was. They didn't understand what a collectible card game was. They didn't really care. Vince basically knows that he owns the, 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 all the photos and the likenesses of the characters. I couldn't take this game and produce it without paying a royalty to them. So if I wanted to turn this into like another another variation, which I did, I did for a mock-up of some friends, I did Trumped Up Deal, and I have Trump actually wrestling against the you know, the uh, Morning Joe crowd. And, you know, and we did a number of different variations of we have Little Rocket Man and stuff. So I produced this, but I never could find another publisher to kind of carry it over um, to produce the actual 
the engine of the game is something that I own intellectually. It would be like saying that, you know, the video game that Acclaim produced, you can't kind of create another game that they don't own the guts of the actual operation of that of that engine. So I own the engine of the game. I don't own the game itself. Like I couldn't, if I wanted to kind of do something, they probably could sue me, you know, but I'm such an insignificant bug to them, you know, they don't, wouldn't really care unless it became extremely popular, you know? <laughs> so then they might come looking for me and try to collect money off of it, especially now that they're more of a corporate operation. But back in the day, you know, Vince always would say, yeah, we own the rights to certain stuff. But really, you know, push comes to shove legally. They don't own what I created because I wasn't an employee there any longer. I the integration of that engine was not something that they could, could claim that they own. And I know I mentioned his name before, but it's true, right? That Xavier Woods slash Austin Creed yeah. slash whatever his name is, what was a, a big lover of the game. And, and even didn't he... Want to try to maybe help bring it back at some point? I had I had heard from through the grapevine that he was really interested um, in in doing that because he f- played the game and I kind of try. Like, Brian, I've had numerous people that have reached out to me over the years to try to resurrect the game, and nobody ever comes to the table with any sort of business plan or money. Right. And I always go, "Where's the money? What's your business plan?" And they they never really have any sort of answer. And I had tried a couple times talking to the um, the media department on maybe turning this into something online. I don't really, I didn't really have any you know major plans on trying to make a cash cow out of this. I thought the fans wanted this. Let's try to make this happen. But the internal operation at World Wrestling didn't. You didn't really come to them with the dollar signs that they needed to make it part of something on their agenda. Mm. That's too bad because it could it could totally work today. And I know you're you're talking about like the potential of turning it into something digital and all that. I even think, I mean, maybe I'm totally off base because you know, you have Pokemon cards, you have Magic the Gathering, you know, they, they do kind of both. They still have cards. I even think there'd be a market, even just from the point of view of of even from a retro vintage point of view of of still doing cards. You know, there'd be people oh, yeah, out there. And I had lined up um, a company in Colorado at the time that had produced the Lord of the Rings uh, online game. So we had a developer that was ready for a turnkey operation. And part of the problem, um, Brian, is, is that a lot of times people in the, you know, the, you know, the executives of the world, they don't really know some of the individual differences. They would just say, is this a video game? No, no, it's not a video game. It's an online game. Well, we don't want to upset our, our big contract with the video game company that are producing our video games. And unless you can kind of tell them it's going to produce X amount of dollars, they're not listening to you. They're not actually letting right. you come to the table with an idea, which is completely counter to the whole operation of Titan Sports. It was an operation that Vince basically took from his, from his dad and ran with it and became friends with people at NBC. Do you remember the days when he used to show up on the Letterman show doing back, back, like a stage, like interview bits. I'm like, who is this guy? They're like, Oh, that's Vince McMahon from the wrestling operation. And Vince was in the trenches. I'm making this a big operation to the point where me with this little wrestling game, I'm knocking on their door and they ain't answering. Yeah, yeah, it's changed so much since those days, since the days when we were there, Mike, for sure. Um, 
but I know we've gone over a little bit here from what I promised you, but I had to get to raw deal. There's no way I would let you go before talking about that. So oh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I have to say too, now you can safely say that when the day does come that I have, and I will have Mick Foley on this show as a guest, I could say, you know, Mike Foley was first before you. (laughs) I beat him. Yay. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right. There you have it, folks, my conversation with Mike Foley, my great friend and former co-worker. Like I said, I was not lying when I told you, I hope you realize now, that Mike had a lot of really fascinating and interesting experiences, as a lot of us did, working for that company. So I hope you enjoyed his insights and his memories. And there will also be a lot more of that to come in future episodes As you know, those are always the types of guests that I am looking to incorporate into this show. I've already said at the beginning of the show who next week's guest is going to be for episode 50. The great Brian Last talked a lot about that. And we've got some other great guests on the way in future episodes as we barrel headlong into 2023. I've got the great superfan manager, promoter, extraordinaire, Cauliflower Alley Club luminary, Carmine Despirito coming up on Shut Up and Wrestle. I've got wrestling historian Mike Chapman, who will be on the way. He's got some very interesting insights that I know he's going to want to share with you on the earliest days of pro wrestling. Former longtime referee Dave Dwinell will be a guest coming up on Shut Up and Wrestle, as well as the widow of Bruiser Brody, Barbara Goodish, and longtime Midwest independent wrestler Attila Khan, also on his way to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. So keep listening. And how can you listen to Shut Up and Wrestle? Of course, there is our website, suawpod.com. You can also find the podcast wherever you find great podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, you will find it there. And while you're doing that, go ahead and join the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle, which is Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. The Facebook group is where you'll find all kinds of cool content and information related to the show. So I encourage you to join. We are going strong there. If you have not listened to the wrestling news, please give it a try. And if you are a regular listener, thank you. The wrestling news is Arcadian Vanguard's daily morning wrestling newscast. And I am very, very happy and proud to be a part of it as the news director. So give it a listen, thewrestlingnews.com. If you'd like to pick up my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, you will find it in digital print or audio form at Amazon.com, at BarnesandNoble.com, and other reputable online book outlets. The magazines I write for, I mentioned Inside the Ropes at the top of the show, InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. There is also Pro Wrestling Illustrated, a little magazine that you may have heard of that I am a monthly contributor to, and you can pick up Pro Wrestling Illustrated at pwi-online.com. If you happen to be looking for me on social media, I can be found at Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also find my author page on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And if you go to any of those social media platforms, you will find the link 
to my author homepage on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon reminding you that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool mom. So long, wrestling fans. Hey.